This episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is sponsored by AWS Energy. AWS brings the most advanced and secure cloud services and deep industry expertise across energy, utilities, and sustainable energy sectors. Together with a broad partner ecosystem, AWS is accelerating the energy transition through practical innovations to deliver energy efficiently, reliably, sustainably, and responsibly. Learn more at aws.amazon.com slash energy. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Bina Sharma, CEO and co-founder of CCU International, co-founder of the Society for Low-Carbon Technologies, and board member for CCS Brazil. If you heard all those titles, there is one common theme. It is carbon capture, utilization, and storage. So yes, today we are talking about carbon, the carbon market, where we are, all of these things. And instead of trying to dive into one specific thing, I think we should just dive into the conversation. So Bina, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me and the audience your background. Thank you, Joe. And uh, thank you for the warm welcome and the great introduction. So uh, Bina Sharma, CEO and co-founder of CCU International. I have a number of different remits. Um, as you know, I sit on a number of different boards. My journey really started not very long ago, as with many people in this industry. You know, it's a fairly new space. But my journey actually started well before the new um, energy space or renewables came into play. And that was really as a um, as in the oil and gas industry. So I came from traditional oil and gas. My background actually is um, psychology. So I don't come from an engineering background or a technical background. And quite often people are really surprised to hear that. But um, I think it just goes to show that, uh, you know, the industry isn't, isn't closed off to people from alternative backgrounds. And much like uh, many others that there are out in, in this, in, in, in specifically in this industry, the requirement to move into this sort of space um, has brought together people from lots of different industries that wouldn't normally be in this space. So my background actually started in psychology and I specialized in something called behavioral change. My first posting in the oil and gas industry was nearly 25 years ago and that was in Nigeria, which I quite often refer to as my baptism of fire. Um, I was out there to do behavioral change for the oil and gas industry, specifically in safety. And you kind of land at Lagos Airport with burnt out planes on the runway. So anyone that's uh, gone out there will know um, that was my introduction. So at the tender age of 21, when I was asked to do this, um, it was I, I had a I would say other locations potentially I could have gone to. But, you know, when you're 21 years old, um, and you're trying to start your career, you tend not to say no to much. So um, your hand, I often say, you know, if my hand hadn't gone up for that particular opportunity, I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. So my journey really transgressed through um, a number of opportunities like Nigeria. And actually, the longest stint that I did was in Norway for two years working for Statoil, now called Equinor. And that was probably one of the nicest locations, I should say, in terms of um, being connected to the rest of the world. Obviously, living in Nigeria was, uh, you know, mangrove forests on a on a on an island surrounded by water. Um, absolute trek of emission to to even get off the island, let alone um, travel internationally. So Norway, better connected, not as warm weather, certainly not as humid. So complete extremes. 
but it was probably one of the best experiences that I've ever had. Um, the challenges in comparison to the two different industries were, were were great. The difference between them were great in the sense that, you know, Nigeria was a sort of all-encompassing. They absolutely lapped up the education and the training that you would give them, whereas Norway was a bit more challenging. Uh, and I find often the Western world is, you know, there is this, um, what could you possibly tell us that we haven't already done before attitude? So that was a, a co- two completely different challenges. But I moved up to Aberdeen. I'm originally from London and I moved up to Aberdeen about six years ago. And when I moved up here, I was working on a Scottish climate change project. And I was actually quite blown away with how much Scotland are doing in this space. And that led me to become more and more interested in what we were doing here. And I came to realize that something like, well, probably more than 50% of the technologies that we need to get us to net zero do not exist. They have not been invented. And I know a lot of people, we, we say those figures quite a lot, but it, I don't think the realization quite dawns on you, um, especially when companies, businesses, industries are being challenged to get to net zero as, as soon as they possibly can. Really, what we need is innovation. And this is the space that I, I thought about in a great deal of, of, you know, in depth. And I thought, what is it that we actually need to do in order to get to where we need to be with net zero. And if it is technologies, then where are those technologies? So that's really when I started to begin my research into this space. And I came to realize that a lot of the technologies that uh, many organizations have been working on, and actually most of those aren't the large organizations, they are your small players, your startups that are working on those technologies. And I started to look into some of these, particularly the academic Uh, organizations like universities that were doing a lot of research in this space. And we came across a technology out of Sheffield University, which is in England, and they were working on a carbon capture technology. This particular technology is probably been developed over the last 10 years. So it's a long time. This is well before we started talking about carbon capture, well before we started talking about, you know, its role towards net zero and actually a professor at the university professor peter styring he is pretty world renowned for the work that he does in carbon capture and has been around for about 15 years and you know most of what he does is in policy he focuses on uh, he's worked on a number of carbon capture project but also his remit is is more the utilization space and this is what really ticked a lot of boxes for me so Whilst we are very, very focused on carbon capture and storage, i.e. taking the CO2 out of the atmosphere or from direct uh, flue and chimney stacks and then putting it, sequestering it, so capturing it, um, liquefying it and transporting it and then sending it down pipelines to then capture, uh, to then store, sorry, sequester underground in underground formations. Um, we come to the realization that this comes with many, many challenges. So if we look at the US right now, there are only two wells, um, you know, two class six wells that have been approved for storage. And in the UK, we have zero. There are some licenses that have been granted, but we're some way away from actually storing large quantities of CO2 into underground um, storage wells. And so the challenge really is, we know from a from a net zero perspective that carbon capture will be a key technology in achieving net zero. The problem that we have is we have vast quantities of CO2 in our atmosphere that we need to do something about. And this is what is contributing towards climate change. So what do we do? We've got two options. We can either capture the emissions before they enter the atmosphere, or we can capture the emissions once they're in the atmosphere, i.e. those historical emissions. And to do that, we have two different technologies. We have point source capture, and then which which will attach itself to industry chimney and flue stacks. And then we've also got direct air capture uh, known as DAC. And that is what effectively large vacuums, suction vacuums that suck uh, the atmospheric, um, anything that's in the atmosphere, whether that's oxygen, nitrogen, CO2, and then separates out the CO2. And then we take that CO2, we liquefy it, and then we store it. The problem that we have is that we have these vast quantities of CO2 in our atmosphere that is affecting um, everything that we do. And paired with that, we are also going through a very, very 
long period of deforestation. So it's the trees that would normally sequester naturally the CO2. But because we're either chopping the trees down or they're burning down, or in Scotland, for example, last year in one night, we had winds that blew down uh, around 8 million trees in one night. So because we're losing a lot of those trees, the balance is completely out. We've got far too much CO2 in our atmosphere than we should have. And that's what's causing climate change. So in order to reduce that down, the idea is that actually if we capture CO2 before it enters the atmosphere and once it's in the atmosphere, then we can remove some of that CO2 and we have to do something with that CO2. And that's where storage comes in. What do we do with these large quantities of CO2? The problem that we've got, and in theory that's great, and in no way, shape or form am I anti-storage, um, I certainly believe that it is one of the solutions that we need to adopt. However, the problem that we've got is the slowness at which the industry is moving. We have years and years of studies and research that needs to go into ensuring that the wells that we are looking to store this CO2 in is safe to do. The structures are safe, that it's not going to leak because potentially if it leaks, it could be hazardous to the environment. So this takes years and years of geological surveys. It takes approvals. It takes insurers. It takes lawyers to sign it off. If somebody needs to take liability for the stored CO2, what happens if it leaks? So I want to ask a, a question there. Since we're on the topic, a lot of different people will take the route of regulation reform and expediting permitting processes and and building continuing to build those robust um the robust monitoring technologies and that is one one avenue people say we need storage and we need to expedite it but it sounds like and with with everything that that you're working on there is the utilization aspect so the the question here is why why the utilization route as opposed to the the for lack of a better term storage y- yeah, yeah storage but but not not just the storage but trying to change the regulation lobbying for faster approvals etc yeah i think um there are huge benefits to storage in the sense that, you know, obviously large organizations, particularly the oil and gas industry, are under immense pressure to get to net zero, to decarbonize. And whilst they are still emitting, there will be heavy heavy fines that will come with that, emissions taxes. So one of the main drivers to move carbon capture and storage along is actually to avoid those emissions taxes, to avoid having to pay those penalties. I'm not saying it's the only driver, but certainly it's one of the drivers. The other thing we have to remember is that, you know, carbon capture has actually been around for a very long time. We seem to think that it's relatively new. It's not. It's just sort of come into the spotlight recently. But the technology that we we use currently for carbon capture has been around for 25, 30 years plus. And we've been so we've been doing this a long time. Typically, the kind of substances and chemicals that we've been using to do this have been around for 70 or 80 years. So it's not a new technology as such. It's certainly not a new way of utilizing these sorts of substances. And not many people know that. The problem that we've got with the industry or the challenge, I should say, we have with the industry is we are using dated technology. We're using technology that is massively energy consuming. It is hazardous to the environment. And typically, we can't really do anything with the CO2 because we're utilizing, when we capture it, we're actually capturing it using this hazardous substance, which is a carcinogenic substance. So it limits us to what we can do with that captured CO2. Hence, the only real route is storage. Mm. Now, if you look at how the industry looks at CO2, CO2 is seen as a waste. It's a very linear graph which then goes into storage or what many people still call landfill. Because ultimately, when you think about the term storage, what do you think about? You think about, I live in this big house, I'm moving to a small apartment, I'm going to downgrade, therefore all the furniture that doesn't fit is going to go into storage. When I move to a bigger place, I will take my furniture out of storage and put it back into my bigger place. That's not what we're doing with carbon capture and storage. We have no intention to utilize that CO2 once it's in storage. Mm -hmm. So it's argued 
a lot of people will argue that the term storage in itself is quite deceptive. And you'll get that from the likes of Greenpeace, Extension Rebellion, etc. So, so with the just out of curiosity with that, because you're you're diving more into that technology side with the carbon capture and and it sounds like ways to clean it so that you can utilize that carbon post capture with the with the existing carbon that's being captured it's using these toxic chemicals and hazardous materials to to wrap it all up is there a way to then clean it again it almost seems like a to me it it does seem like a several steps to a process that maybe don't need to all be there but hypothetically is there a way that we can pull that carbon out of storage and utilize it i mean never say never there is a possibility (laughs) um the idea is that when we store co2 um into storage sites the idea is that it it should mineralize now Currently, we think that takes about a thousand years, maybe longer. There are technologies that are trying to do that a lot quicker. So hypothetically, we should be able to utilize the CO2 if we needed it. But then the question would be, we would only really need to utilize that CO2 if we stopped producing CO2 in our own productions. Um, Because why would we take it out of the ground if we can get it from our atmosphere or if we can get it from, you know, industry flu stacks? When we bring in the utilization aspect, so if you think about the technology that we're using at the moment, which is dated, limits what we can do. And really the, the answer in this question is, what do we currently use CO2 for? in industry, in our everyday life? And the answer is almost everything. We use it for plastics manufacturing. We use it to keep our salads fresh. We use it for all sorts of things, chemicals, methanol, ethanol, you name it. There's a whole heap of things that we use CO2 for. Mm. The biggest issue that we've got is when you're using it for things like food or beverage. So let's take your soft drinks or your beer. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, we had a beer shortage. That was a shortage of CO2. Now then you might ask me the question, well, if we have a shortage of CO2 and the cost has gone up threefold since the beginning of of COVID. So companies more and more struggling to get, not just get hold of CO2, but actually struggling to pay for CO2. Now, if you think about your carbonated drinks, every time you open a can, that's CO2. Every time you open your, you know, sparkling water, that's CO2. The beer shortage, that was probably the first time that people, certainly in the Western world, say it came to realize that actually our beer has CO2 in it. And that's why we can't get hold of any because there's a shortage. So you might then ask me the question, well, if we've got a shortage of it and we can't quite meet demand and it's very expensive because of that reason, then why are we putting it under the ground? And the simple answer is because of the technology that we're using. So could you imagine a beer drinker finding out that their carbonated drinks, the CO2 in their carbonated drink or their beer came from a technology that could potentially cause cancers? So because of the dated technology that we're using, we're very restricted as to what we can do with it. We can utilize the captured CO2 for something called enhanced oil recovery, which encourages more production of oil. And that is debatable for a lot of people as to whether or not that's the best use of it, you know, because of what we're trying to do by capturing it and storing it in the first place. And then if you look at the technologies that are starting to come up now, including our technology at CCU International, there's a story behind how that came about. So our technology was not developed as a carbon capture system per se. What happened was the team at Sheffield University that we were working quite closely with, they were looking for ways to utilize captured CO2. So turn it into chemicals, turn it into aviation fuel, turn it into diesel. Now, as they went out to try and find feedstocks to do that research, they couldn't find captured CO2. So they did this for quite a while and they thought, do you know what? The best way actually to get our own captured CO2 is by building our own carbon capture systems so we can capture the co2 and it was all for the purposes of researching what you could do with captured co2 so it never came about as a we're going to go away and create this wonderful carbon capture system which is going to take the world by storm yeah and professor peter styring he worked this was back in 2011 he worked on the uk's first ever carbon capture project it was a project called ferry bridge 
CC100+. Plus. You can Google it, find out all the details. It was an SSE and Dusan Babcock project. And it cost something like £27 million. Pounds. Uh, it was a large amine capture plant, which is the hazardous substance that I spoke about. And Peter often describes it as the size of a city. It was absolutely huge, very energy intensive. It didn't work. It failed. And after two years, they decommissioned. So he came away from that project saying, there must be a way to do this that isn't the size of a city, that doesn't cost the earth, and that doesn't use as much energy as it does. But better still, there must be a way to do this without using amines. And that's initially where the research started. It was only really in the last couple of years that he managed to get some funding and support from ourselves as well to commercialize the technology. So we went very quickly up the technology ready levels. And obviously, as you know, the market right now is ripe. Everybody wants carbon capture, particularly in the US with all the subsidies and the Inflation Reduction Act that you've got there as well yeah. to, to create those tax incentives. Yeah. So there's a huge change taking place. And if you look at it, you know, globally, something like 230 million tons of CO2 is used every year. Um, and the largest consumer is actually the fertilizer industry. They use 130 million tons of CO2. Um, and that's often used in what we call urea manufacturing. And then there's that's closely followed by oil and gas with a consumption of about 70 to 80 million tons. And that is used for enhanced oil recovery so, to drill for more oil. So when we, we talk about those numbers, those those are very large numbers. And we talked about the enhanced oil recovery. And that can be some of these these captured CO2s. But for the fertilizer being 230 million tons and for things like beer and other processes. I just want to make sure I understand all of those, I guess, where, where does the CO2 come from? If it's not being from a carbon capture technology, where do we get that CO2 right now? Right. So CO2, the sources can come from many places. It is generally burning of fossil fuels. That's where your CO2 typically comes from. However, if we are, for example, waste to energy plants who um, transfer waste, they burn waste into energy. There's CO2 that gets burnt during that as well. We can capture that. So it's a number of different industries, but predominantly it is the burning of fossil fuels. So it will be your diesels, your aviation fuels. So anything that goes into, into fossil fuels. And one of the projects that we're working on, actually, interestingly, is which a lot of people don't know. Um, you know, most people I speak to in the industry, uh, I would say 99.9% of people I speak to who have CCS, CCUS in their titles actually don't know what we can do with CO2 other than store it or use mm. it for enhanced oil recovery. So if you look at um, the likes of Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Johnson Matthey, who they are responsible for manufacturing and, and creating these products uh, washing liquids, soaps, shampoos, your cleaning substances. These are the three largest companies. They've come to together on a project to look at actually removing the reliance off of virgin fossil fuels. So every single product that has a soap in it has something called surfactants in it, and that has CO2 in it. It comes from fossil fuels. So they are working on a project in the UK, which will be a complete game changer it has the opportunity to remove 15 to 20 million tons of CO2 alone in the UK just by capturing the CO2 emissions from the steel and the paper mills and creating surfactants that go into your shampoos, your shower gels, etc. Wow. Now, as you're explaining this, I, I to me, there it's almost like a win-win situation where we are capturing CO2 that would have would have gone out into the atmosphere and we're, we're now putting that into products. And at the same time, we are now minimizing the, the amount of fossil fuel derived CO2 that is also going into the products. So we are removing it on both ends almost. Is that, mm -hmm. is that a correct way to think about that? Yeah, I think what Unilever are doing is, is really actually quite cool. You know, they are on the one hand, they're working tirelessly to find, to engineer a solution, uh, to engineer out the, the fossil fuels in their products. But they recognize that that's not something they're going to do overnight. In the meantime, they've got this 
virgin fossil fuel that they're using for surfactants, what do we do to make that a little bit more friendly? So they're doing almost both. And I think certainly with the oil and gas industry, we are, we are so focused on carbon capture that we're not thinking about the actual transition. You know, carbon capture is still some way away. And the actual transitional piece, that's where the utilization comes in. Because mm-hmm. guess what? We're utilizing virgin fossil fuel for all these other products when actually we could be utilizing captured CO2 to do that. And some people will say, and if you think about what's happening in the industry, we've got your diesels, we've got your aviation fuels, where they're talking about sustainable aviation fuels. We need feedstocks. What we're hearing from companies is we don't have the feedstocks, we don't have the CO2, and we don't have the hydrogen, you know, because all the captured CO2 is going into storage sites. If we are, the aviation industry, if they are to be realistic about, De, you know, decarbonizing the industry, then yes, at some point they need a, you know, a zero fossil fuel fuel, but they know that that's not going to happen tomorrow. They know we're not going to be flying in hydrogen powered airplanes tomorrow. What do they do in the meantime? In the meantime, they find a sustainable aviation fuel that can utilize captured CO2 instead of virgin fossil fuel. Yeah. And that helps to reduce down the detriment that it has it's not going to completely remove it because effectively what we're doing is we're talking about what what we use, the term that we use, and Professor Peter Staring has written a paper on this, custodians of carbon, taking personal responsibility for the CO2 that we utilize and taking that responsibility to utilize over and over and over again, mm-hmm. almost owning that CO2 and making sure that it's not going to go to landfill. So every time you utilize the CO2 and every time you clean it up through the carbon capture process, you end up with an even cleaner CO2 that when it burns, it's nowhere near as harmful as a virgin fossil fuel. Mm. So this is what we're trying to get to. Storage, yes, we recognize we're going to need it. We've got such vast quantities of CO2, we need to do something about it. But in the meantime, whilst we're trying to get there, whilst we get to a point where we can do it safely, securely and in very large quantities, we need to do something about the CO2 right now. And we need to do something about those industries that are still using virgin fossil fuel yeah. for their products or yeah. their, you know, or their fuels, etc. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really like that circular economy aspect to, to the CO2 and and where and how you end up utilizing it in a circular sense. Now, I think I we've we've talked about a lot of different things, a lot of different industries, and a lot of different ways to utilize the carbon. And I think that 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 kind of lends into pointing out that you the introduction here, three different titles, being a board member of CCS Brazil, being a founding member of the Society for Low Carbon Technologies, a I I forgot what I was going to ask, but um, what was I going to Would ask? Would you like me to tell you a little bit about them? <laughs> I want to hear a little bit about them, and let's let's start with that. What what are those? And let's sure. let's discuss those for a bit. Sure. Right. So CCS Brazil, so the international board that I set on for CCS Brazil. They are a phenomenal team. They are a team of two female co-founders. And this is probably one of the reasons why I've championed this, because it's very, very rare to find women in this this space, in this industry. So they are a team of two female co-founders who have set up CCS Brazil um, with the ideal that that Brazil should be partaking in carbon capture and storage. Um, you know, one of them is a lawyer. They have a really, really good team, really good support. They're working very closely with the uh, Brazil government and the um, Department of Energy in the US. So partnerships are huge. There's a there's a potential um, symbolic partnership here that could happen between the US and Brazil and other countries. So one of the reasons why I champion them is because a because they were women in the space, which is rare, but b because what they're doing um, is really pioneering this in Brazil. It's never been done before. They have taken what's happening globally and they are wanting to bring Brazil in line, if not above what is happening elsewhere. They have less, um, I would say, less bureaucracy probably than what we have in the Western world, the US and certainly the UK, with regards to you know the time that things are taking here. Um, so I think they will likely be more successful 
um, in comparison to other countries. But also what I'm finding is um, quite a, a lot of, uh, you know, Eastern countries, third third world countries even are thinking about carbon capture, utilization and storage. So they will be moving ahead. We're seeing lots and lots of studies coming out of India, for example, the government backing it. So that's kind of my remit with the international board, bringing that international feel and bringing the international connections to CCS Brazil. The other remit I have is the Society for Low Carbon Technologies. One of the reasons why that was set up was because Remember I said at the beginning of this call that more than 50% of the technologies that we need to get to net zero have not yet been invented. So the question really for us as the founding board members is that where are those technologies? And if they don't exist, how do we champion companies, organizations and individuals to start inventing these technologies? And what we found is a lot of companies all over the world, they work very much in silos. Um, You've got certain you know, technology centers or certain industry or certain companies that work. It's all about competition. And what we're saying is actually in this space right now, competition is the last thing we need. We need collaboration. Better still, we need co what I call co-creation. We need to come together and we need to create together. And some industries are doing it. We work in the shipping industry, for example, and the shipping industry, have co- they've come together. They recognize that the shipping industry is one of the biggest challenges you know, to decarbonize because they lack in space, they lack in, you know, resources, they're out at sea for days on end, months, weeks, weeks on end. So the shipping industry has actually come together to start piloting some of these technologies and they're sharing those learning, they're sharing those learnings between them, you know, some of the larger industry, uh, some of the larger ship owners are pioneering some of these, but they're bringing in ship owners of all sizes and shapes and industries. So, the reason why the Society for Low Carbon Technologies came together was because we recognized that there was a desire for not just companies, but individuals and startups to have somewhere to go to that allows them to bring their technology to the table. But not just that, also organizations being able to come to somewhere, one place that says, these are my requirements, what technologies are out there that can help me decarbonize my industry. And right now, we don't have anything like that. You have to go away and do your research. I spend most of my time educating people on the different technologies that are out there. I hear about companies who talk about carbon capture. Very few of them know that there is technology available that doesn't involve amines, for example. And that's a big part of the education I provide. Yeah, I think that what you're saying resonates very much with with myself and coming from the geothermal side is, is where that my focus is, is and really that that key of collaboration and, and co-creation I really like that phrase because that is something that we really still need there is sections of the geothermal industry that are very much in the in the budding early early years of their life that that need to be developed and and very similar to any type of carbon capture technology. These are expensive technologies to start. If mm-hmm. if you're building a, a plant that is the size of a city, as you pointed out earlier, and then it fails, that could have drastic effects on on that development timeline. And it could could scare yeah. people away. But it sounds like that the goal here with something like the with the Society of Low Carbon Technologies and CCS Brazil is is to bring people in and to start mm-hmm. seeing what the opportunities are and to push everything forward together. I really like that. Yeah, 100%. It's, um, I mean, that is why the society was set up. And like, much like yourself, you know, we are seeing a variation in education, in training, in understanding in some of these spaces and sometimes organizations which we believe would normally be at the forefront of technologies are sometimes so far behind and the issue that we've got particularly with very large industry or very large corporates in the space is that you know they might be working with a technology that they've worked for uh, worked with for 25 years Um, if we take one example you know there is a company who have their own carbon capture technology they've been working 
in this space for 25 years. It's their own technology. It's an amine capture plant. But they have 25 years of learning of bettering this carbon capture system. When I come along and I say, I've got this technology that is next generational, it gets rid of all your energy requirements. It doesn't, it's not as uh, CapEx heavy. It's not as OPEX heavy. It doesn't need as much energy. And guess what? I don't use any hazardous substances, which ticks a lot of boxes and takes away a lot of your issues. The response I get is not that they don't want to incorporate our technology, but well, we've got 25 years of learning in this. Which large corporation, which large corporation, who is going to be the person that sticks their hand up in the air and says, I think we need to ditch this technology after 25 years of learning on it. And this is the challenges. So as a company, we don't, we typically don't go for those large organizations or those large, we are focused on small industry. If you think about smaller industry, and when I say small industry, I'm talking about your steel mills, your paper mills, your manufacturing, they make up a large percentage of those that emit CO2 into the atmosphere. They do not have the money to pay for large carbon capture systems. They don't have the space for them. So they don't have the space. They don't have the money. They don't have access to pipelines. They're normally in the middle of nowhere. How do these industries decarbonize? And this is the big challenge. So our capture technology, as much as it can serve large industry, the whole reason why the capture technology was was invented, if you like, was so that it would it could be modularized, it could be containerized, it has a small footprint, doesn't include any hazardous substance, so you're not you're not susceptible to you know permits, for example. So amine technology needs to be you know needs to be approved by the environment agency, and we're hearing of stories of carbon capture companies pulling out of the UK now because of the environment agency actually wanting full you know they, they want to be able to permit this it's because it's a hazardous substance you know it has to be it has to be approved how it's used how it's disposed of how it's replaced and these are all the kind of issues that existing or older tech conventional technologies are coming across but we're talking to industries who have no idea no idea that there are other technologies out there that doesn't need to be aiming um, based on amines or based or built as large as they are or as energy intensive they are. So our biggest remit at the Society for Low Carbon Technologies is to educate and to be that point, that resource point for companies to come to and say, hey, tell me what the latest carbon capture technology is or tell me what the latest high, you know, hydrogen technology is. This is what I want to be able to do. Where else do they go? Yeah. And this is the big question. Yeah, well, I, I think that that's a, that is a great a great initiative and a, a, a great utilization of tools and technologies is combining all of that and, and letting people know where they can go to kind of solve the challenges that they have or hit those, those net zero goals or whatever types of environmental goals that they have to, to decarbonize. With that, I, I think that's a good a good point to transition into our final questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. The first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Oh gosh, I've got quite a few. <laughs> that one's thrown me a little bit. Um, as I've got two young ish kids, um, I should say probably my favorite whilst reading to them. That's a long time away now is, is probably the Harry Potter series. Um, it's, uh, you know, most people have heard of Harry Potter, so I probably don't need to say too much about it, but, um, pairing the movies with the, with the books, I mean, the movies are great, but the books are much, much better. Mm -hmm. So that's one, well, it's a series of books, so not just the one. Yep. I think that is a good one and a great reminder that nine times out of 10, the book is better than the movie. Yes. So the next question how do we get to net zero? Um, there is no one answer to this. I do get asked this quite a lot because, as I mentioned, technologies is one way, but it's not the only answer. You know, we could probably um, invest in all sorts of technologies that would do all sorts of wonderful things. The biggest challenge and also at the, at the same time, the one way that we can get to net zero is a mindset shift. And this is me coming from a psychology background. 
It doesn't matter what you invent, what technologies you've got out there. At the end of the day, if people don't want to do it, they won't do it. There are so many barriers to the way that we think. Um, there is a, you know, the age old problem where if we just carry on doing things the way that they've been done, then, you know, it's, but it's not, we're, we're trying to do something different, but we're continuing to do things the way that we've always done them. So it's going to be a massive uh, change that needs to take place, but that change has to be a behavioral change. And I do honestly believe that once we see that behavioral shift, we're starting to see it as opposed to it being led by regulation, emissions tax, inflation reduction act. We need it to be something that people actually want to do and they believe in because it's the right thing to do for the generations to come. Once we get to that stage, I think the possibilities are endless. We could get to net zero very, very quickly. If we, the longer that transition, that mindset transition takes, the longer it's going to take us to get to net zero. I would like to think that we can meet the targets, but we keep being told doom and gloom every day that we're not meeting the targets. So something needs to change. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. There is a, a mindset shift that does need to take place. It, um, it reminds me way back when in, in high school, the, all of our coaches, no matter what sport, they would say, believe to achieve. So it was always, if you believe you can do it, then you will hit those goals. You will achieve those those marks that you set. And absolutely, that's what we need. Yeah, so now- absolutely. And um, as a, uh, I have a husband who is a karate sensei. Ah. And uh, he always says to to my boys who also teach, he always says to myself and my boys and all his students, if you aim high, you kick high. Mm -hmm. So quite often when he tells kids, you know, when they're kicking, he's like, where are you looking? Where are you looking? And he'll put his hand up high. Look at my hand up here. And guess what? They kick high. So he says, if you aim high, you kick high. Yeah, I like it. Now, the last question is actually you get to ask me a question now. Ah, well, I guess the question's back on you. What do you feel are the biggest barriers, probably in the US, to us getting to net zero? Let's see. The biggest barriers in the US to getting to net zero, I I think it going back to your your mindset i think there is a mindset component to that and and i think building on that there is there is a a just a general hesitancy i feel like that is the the standard default is resisting change and so when it comes to policy and regulations that would be that would be pro environment and pro business and pro communal growth and societal um, value I think that that is uh-huh. it's scary to people and, and it's truthfully yeah. it is it is hard to develop something that is all of those you hard to get a win-win much less a win-win-win-win so so uh, the, my question uh, i know you said one question but i do have a following question so my question to you is when we're thinking about carbon capture and storage at the moment obviously with it you have the inflation reduction act which is the only real incentive in the u.s right now yeah. but at the moment you capture at cost you compress you liquefy at cost you transport at cost you um inject at cost and then you monitor we think a thousand plus years at cost so how then do we expect business industry to burden that cost to get us to net zero and this is an issue that we've got in the uk whereas if we do the utilization piece we are capturing the capturing will obviously remove some of those emissions taxes that you're having to pay or carbon tax when it comes in but you are liquefying, compressing, and then you utilize within the industry. So you sell the CO2 back into the industry or you create your downstream technologies, use your downstream technologies to create your fuels, your diesels, etc. That generates multiple revenue streams 
for businesses, including carbon credits, because you get your carbon credits. And in the US, you get your Inflation Reduction Act kicks in as well. So do you think, my question is, do you think if we went more towards that model, whereby carbon capture, utilization or storage made businesses revenue, generated revenue in the business, do you think that would be favoured over a carbon capture and storage approach where everything is done at cost and we're looking for government handouts to pay for it. Yeah, I I think that is a it's a very important point that needs to be recognized and and discussed. The fact that everything with with sequestration pretty much every step is a cost and it is a cost to avoid this potential for tax or to to sell voluntary carbon credits which which are are not a it it's not it, it is hard to really understand what the value is there besides mm-hmm. you're you're doing the right thing almost so yeah absolutely i think i i really like the idea of this circular carbon economy where you can you can capture the carbon. You can turn it into the 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 end products that we use today. You can make that your new feedstock, and I think that is the that is a really interesting way to go about it. And it it, it touches on a point you made earlier, and one of my previous guests on the show talking about new feedstocks for sustainable aviation f- fuel. Yep. The the idea there is you've got an end product. We have airplanes. We need fuel for them. How do we do that in a sustainable way? Ultimately, that comes back to what is the feedstock? And using captured CO2, using something else that is a sustainable circular opportunity, I think that is that is definitely a better solution. I think yeah. the big question here and, and kind of going back to my answer is that it it's scary to think about because you have to develop new technology. You have to make those investments. You have to mothball your 25-year-old refinery or you have to retrofit it, which is in some cases would be viewed as even a worse solution, retrofitting something as opposed to just mothballing it. So it's a exactly yeah. So it, it it is that that mindset shift of we can do it using using captured carbon and and other sustainable feedstocks. We have to change our business model a little bit. We have to figure out how to do it, but ultimately it's going to be better for us. I think people want yeah, to say, I- "Well, I'm comfortable in my seat doing what I'm doing." And until somebody forces me out of my seat, I think I'm okay doing what I'm going to do. And that's, yeah. I think, and I think that's what sort of regulation and fines yeah. and penalties and stuff. That's what they do. And it's not, it's the stick approach, isn't yeah. it? As opposed to the carrot approach. So yeah. you're always going to get much longer term behavioral change with a, with a carrot approach as opposed to just a stick approach, yeah. maybe a combination of the two. But what I will add is, you know, you touched very quickly on the sustainable fuels we are hearing, you know, sustainable, you know, how do you define sustainable fuels? Now, as far as the EU directive is concerned, it has to have a 70% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. So, and that's huge in order for it to even be classed as sustainable. So we're not just looking at car- generally carbon capture. You wouldn't be able to do that if you're capturing off, you know, some dirty industries using dirty um, technology or yeah. sorry aging technology which uses hazardous substances because we're looking at the carbon efficiency now yeah. if this is a question that's never been asked before but people are starting to ask what does this carbon capture technology um, consume in terms of energy yeah. and how carbon efficient is it if I'm pulling 10 tons of co2 a day out of the atmosphere am I using 11 tons of co2 to do it yeah. whilst I'm burning the energy. So this is a question that has never been asked before. So whilst you're, we're now starting to ask those questions in order to understand what the definition of sustainable is, yeah. what we're going to find is the the sources that we have available to 
to, for those sustainable fuels is going to reduce and reduce and reduce because you're going to have to go for things like biogenic, you know, burning wood, for example, as opposed to dirty industry in order to get that 70% reduction. So that's a really interesting space that we're hearing about quite a lot, particularly in the, in the EU. Um, certainly some of our clients we're working with in Spain are telling us the same thing. Uh, EU, Germany and the UK now are coming on board. Whether or not that moves over to the US at some point, it probably will do. Um, that remains to be seen. Yeah. Well, that is very interesting and very exciting stuff. With that, I think we should wrap it up. So, Bina, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? No, only one thing. I think if anybody out there is looking for, you know, lots of companies are going to be looking at carbon capture to help them decarbonize or defossilize. I think it's really important to ask those two questions. So whichever technology you're looking at, ask them what the energy requirement is. What you don't want to do is end up having to use ridiculous copious amounts of energy um, for this carbon capture plant uh, in comparison to what would happen if you, if you didn't have it, you know, if it's, if it's using more energy than what you're actually emitting. And the second question to ask is the carbon efficiency. How efficient is this technology? Because this is something that I would love to be able to educate clients on, but it's really important you ask those two questions, the energy consumption and the carbon efficiency of any technology that you're looking at. Yeah, very good. And that sounds like very important questions. Well, Bina, thank you again for joining me and thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy related stories, we have all sorts of energy related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. If you're into stickers, I have a way to get you some from us. Go to the show notes, find that one question survey link, go fill it out, and we will send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email address is ets at OGGN.com. If you don't use email, find me on LinkedIn. If the email doesn't work, find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.